be reading this morning from Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12, and we will read verses 22 through 24. Hear the word of the Lord. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling, which speaks better things than that of Abel. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. You may be seated. Well, as you may have noticed, that wasn't Genesis. We are taking a break from Genesis this morning. We'll get back to it next week, but starting this morning, the first Sunday of each month for the foreseeable future will be set aside to be part of an ongoing series on the topic of the church. This is something that's been brewing in my mind for several months now, and I've had some conversations uh, with the elders and the deacons about it. And so in the coming months, we're going to look at the nature and identity of the church, uh, its organization in the local body, and the roles and duties of elders, deacons, and members, and the work of the church, both in our lives and in the world. And so to get us started this morning, I wanted to uh, deal with and address the very essence of the identity of the church. The English word church is interesting. Like many words in the English language, we use it uh, to mean several different things depending on the context in which we use it. We may use the word church to refer to this building that we're meeting in this morning. And so we might say, this church was built in the 1970s. Now, sometimes, though, we use the word church to refer to an institutional organization. And so we might refer to the Church of England or the Church of Scotland or uh, to denominations here in America, the Presbyterian Church in America. Other times, we use the word church to refer to the organization of a particular local body. And so we might say, Stu is a deacon in this church. And what we mean is we're referring to this particular congregation and the way it is organized uh, with deacons and elders. Now, what's really interesting is the origins of this English word, church. It's derived, of course, from the Old English word, uh, church, uh, which is spelled quite differently than how we spell it in modern English, but it's related to uh, the Scottish word kirk, K-I-R-K, and to the German kirch. Now, all of those actually come from the Greek. Uh, there is a Greek word that is used in the New Testament that is pronounced kuriakon, and that is where our English word church comes from. This word is only used twice in the New Testament. In 1 Corinthians 11.20, Therefore, when you come together in one place, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. And then in Revelation 1, verse 10, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet. Now, what you might notice about these two references is that neither one of these verses 
uses the word church in English. And that's because the Greek word from which we derive the word church doesn't actually uh, mean what we mean when we say church. Rather, what it means is of or pertaining to the Lord. And so in those verses, it is the Lord's Supper or the Lord's Day. So where do we actually get uh, the word church in our English Bibles? What Greek word is being translated as church? Well, it's the Greek word ekklesia, and you may have heard this word before. This word is actually used quite a number of times in the New Testament. And so if we want to know what the church is, a good place to start might be to look at this word ekklesia and to determine what it means. It's in our text that I read this morning from Hebrews in verse 23, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven. So this is our starting place for understanding the nature and the identity of the church. There are multitude of metaphors used throughout the New Testament to describe the church uh, as a body, as a temple, as a bride, all of these different metaphors, and we'll look at those in the coming months. But this word, ecclesia, is the only word that is ever translated as church in our New Testaments. It's used 115 times. It is translated as church 112 of those times. So what about the other three? Well, in those other three instances, it is translated as assembly, assembly. And that's actually what the word means. It means assembly or gathering. Interestingly, all three of those times are in one passage in Acts chapter 19. And you might remember, this is when the Apostle Paul was in Ephesus. He had stopped in Ephesus and he was preaching the gospel, proclaiming the gospel in the city. People were turning from their idolatry and their worship of the Roman gods to Christ and had become Christians. And this had a massive impact on the economy of the city. People had turned away from their idolatry and begun to worship Christ. And in doing so, it had upset the economy of the city because there was a great deal of the city's economy that was bound up with the production of religious artifacts that had to do with the worship of the Roman goddess Diana. And so the the craftsmen who formed and made these trinkets and sold them got together and they got the people of the town stirred up because of the economic impact that the preaching of the gospel was having. And so it says that the whole city uh, was filled with confusion and that all of the people rushed into the theater, the amphitheater in Ephesus, and, and began to clamor about what are we going to do about these Christians who have upset the economy of our city. This is a mob of people, and it is called an ecclesia, an assembly three times. It's a disorderly assembly. It's a riot even, but it is an assembly. And the point is, the people of the city were gathered together, assembled into one place, into one group. And that's what the word means. But everywhere else that it's used in the New Testament, it is translated into English as church. 
But the word church is derived from kuriakon, which means of the Lord's or pertaining to the Lord. And so we might think of the church as an assembly or a gathering which belongs to the Lord. It is the Lord's assembly, just as the Lord's day or the Lord's supper. Some churches in recent years, you may have seen this, even begun referring to their Sunday morning worship services as a gathering. And they're referring back to the meaning of this word, ecclesia. And so as we examine the identity of the church this morning, here is my main point. The church is unlike any other organization on earth because it is gathered by God, to God, and for God. There are many, many assemblies in the world, many gatherings of which you could be a part. There's an unending list of civic organizations, interest groups of one kind or another, political parties. You could join any of those things. You could be gathered together with other people for the purposes of those assemblies. And too often, I think, we treat the church like it is another one of this smorgasbord of assemblies or gatherings that we could be a part of. It's just another social club. It's another political action group. As long as it doesn't get out of place, as long as it doesn't take up too much time, We're okay with kind of plugging the church in as one spoke of that wheel in our lives. We might be tempted to say, though, that the church is different. It's different from these other groups in that the church has a mission in the world. But the truth of the matter is, plenty of these other groups have a mission. They have a purpose, something they're trying to accomplish in the world. So what makes the church different from these groups? Well, I would posit that there are four primary marks of distinction between the church and other assemblies or gatherings in the world. The first one is that the church is a spiritual assembly, a spiritual gathering. In our text here in Hebrews 12, we see that there are eight things that we are said to have come to. You have come to Mount Zion. Now, Mount Zion, if you'll remember, you're biblical geography was the temple on which the, the was the mountain on which the temple was built in Israel now given that one of the main themes of the book of hebrews is that the temple is no longer necessary that the temple has been done away with because Christ has come he is the temple he is where the presence of god dwells bodily and so Hebrews as a book is encouraging people not to turn back to that physical temple and all of the sacrifices and religious practices that go with it, but rather to cling to Christ. Then I don't think what Hebrews is saying here is that we are to come to that mountain where the temple is. It's saying something more than that. This isn't a reference to the actual temple mount. If we look back at verse 18, you'll see it says, For you have not come, you have not come, to the mountain that may be touched and that burned with fire and to blackness and darkness and tempest. We have not come to a physical mountain that may be touched. We have come to a spiritual reality that is far greater than the old covenant, than the old temple in the Old Testament. We see this in our, the next phrase here in verse 22, which says that we have come to the city of the living God, the heavenly God, 
Jerusalem. Not the physical Jerusalem, the heavenly one. Now, the heavenly Jerusalem is pictured for us in the book of Revelation. We get to chapter 21 in Revelation. We are told that the heavenly Jerusalem is descending out of heaven from God. And it's also in chapter 21 of Revelation called the bride, the lamb's wife. Now, this is a reference to the church, which is identified as the bride in multiple places throughout the New Testament. And so the new Jerusalem represents the church. The heavenly Jerusalem is the church, the people of God in the new creation. And what does Revelation tell us about the heavenly Jerusalem? There is no temple in the heavenly Jerusalem. There is no physical temple. It's unnecessary. God dwells with his people. So Mount Zion is a reference to the spiritual reality of God's presence with his people in the church. And we are said to have come to an innumerable company of angels. Think about that. Brian mentioned this this morning in CLA. The angels are unlike us. They're not physical creatures. They are not part of this physical reality that we see around us. They are spiritual beings. They are spiritual beings who faithfully and sinlessly worship the Creator. We are sinful creatures, physical creatures, who have been redeemed by Christ And we have now become worshipers of God with the angels. Our worship is joined to the worship of the holy angels in heaven. Stop and think about that. When we gather this morning and and sing songs of praise, read the scriptures, pray, our worship is joined to the worship of the angels. So we have not only come to heavenly places, the New Jerusalem, the city of God, but we have come to heavenly society, the company of the angels. But in verse 23, it says that we have also come to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven. Now, the word general assembly is only used here in the New Testament, and it's not the word ecclesia that's translated as assembly. The word ecclesia is in this verse is translated as church. But the word general assembly here is a Greek word that means the gathering of a whole nation for a festival celebration. It is used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, uh, when they translate the words that refer to the gathering of Israel together for the various festivals that they would assemble to observe throughout their calendar year. And so what is being said here is that we have come to the general assembly, to the festival gathering of all of God's people. We have come to the church of the firstborn. This is a reference to the Old Testament saints who have gone before us. We are not only joined in worship with the angels, but we are united into one assembly with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, Daniel, all of the Old Testament saints who were justified by faith and are written in the Lamb's book of life. But then it says, we have come to God, the judge of all. That is, he judges the saints under the old covenant. He judges the saints under the new covenant. He judges the righteous and the unrighteous. He judges the Jew and the Gentile. He judges all 
of his creation. We have come, it says, to the spirits of just men made perfect. Again, we've been joined into one assembly with all of those who have been justified by faith, including those who are no longer in the flesh, those who have have passed through death into life in the heavenly city. Their souls have been made perfect in righteousness. All of this is to say that we have been joined to the universal or Catholic church. It's a spiritual reality, not a physical one. Our confession puts it this way in chapter 26 of the church in paragraph 1. The Catholic or universal church, which, with respect to the internal work of the spirit and truth of grace, may be called invisible, consists of the whole number of the elect that have been, are, or shall be gathered into one under Christ, the head thereof, and is the spouse, the body, the fullness of him that fills all in all. All the elect, those that have been, those who are, and those who shall be, gathered into one church, one assembly under Christ our head. No other gathering of people in the world can claim this spiritual identity. False religions and other groups may claim a certain spirituality, but the church is the only truly spiritual gathering in the world. When we gather and worship, our worship is joined to the worship of the saints and the angels in heaven. This has implications for our understanding of what it means to be part of the church. It's a far greater reality than what we can see with our eyes when we look around this room. We are gathered with believers around the globe and throughout time, even those who are at this very moment worshiping around the throne in heaven itself. An awareness of this spiritual reality when we come together to worship would have a great impact on our worship. When the person beside you is singing out of tune, I know none of you do that, but if the person beside you is singing out of tune or the temperature in the room is a little too cold or a little too warm, when there's anything that's physically not to your liking or or maybe a little uncomfortable or unpleasing to you, just remember We are part of an innumerably large spiritual gathering of men and angels on earth and in heaven, all joining together to worship our Creator. Set aside the physical distractions and focus on the spiritual nature of what we are doing here. The second mark of distinction is that the church is gathered by God. All other groups and organizations that are assemblies uh, that we join, we do so of our own will and for our own reasons. But the church is different. The church is gathered by God. In our text here in Hebrews, it says that we have come to God, the judge of all, in verse 23. And in verse 24, it says we have come to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. Now, what do we know of people coming to Christ? What does the scripture teach us concerning lost men, sinners, 
coming to Jesus. Well, we know that we don't come to God by means of our own righteousness. Scripture is plain. The Bible says that our righteousness is as filthy rags in Isaiah 64, 6. We are unclean in our sin. We need an atoning sacrifice to be made to satisfy God's holy justice and to purify us so that we are fit to enter his presence. And so we come, it says in verse 24, to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. Abel, if you'll remember back to Genesis chapter 4, was murdered by his brother Cain. And Abel's blood cried out from the ground. It cried out that murder had taken place, that Cain had killed his brother, that sin had been committed, that justice needed to be served. Christ's blood cries out better things. It cries out that sin has been covered, that justice has been satisfied, that atonement has been made. It cries out that the righteous one has laid down his life for his elect. That's how we come to God, through the atoning blood of Christ that cries out that we belong to him. We are no longer our own. We have been purchased at the cost of the life of the Son of God. And this, the Bible says, is not our own will, but the will of God. In John 6, Jesus tells, Nicodemus, tells his disciples, rather, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. No one can come unless the Father draws him. We cannot come to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, unless God does a work in our hearts to draw us to Christ. This is what Jesus said. It's clear. There's, there's no dispute over that. Those are Jesus' words. The only question left to ask is, how does God draw us? Well, in Romans 9, which is the classic text on this subject, it is written, For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. So then it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. That is how God draws us to Christ, by showing us mercy. In our pride and sinfulness, we would never come to him. We would never repent, turn away from our sins, and trust in the finished work of Christ. We would stubbornly trust in our own efforts, in our own works, and be angry with God that he didn't accept those as good enough. And so Jesus tells Nicodemus in John chapter 3, unless one is born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. We cannot come to God unless we are born again by an act of the Holy Spirit working in our hearts to give us new life new birth. Regeneration is the word that theologians use. Only when we have experienced regeneration, when our sinful, hard heart has been changed by the work of the Holy Spirit, may we then come to Christ in faith. All other groups that we might join, we join of our own will. But the church 
we join by the will of God. In Acts 2, as it describes the early church, it says this, And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. The Lord added to the church. That's a very stark way in which the world differs from other groups in the world. The church is gathered by God. Now, this has staggering implications for our lives as Christians. Since the church is the assembly belonging to the Lord, and since it is gathered and assembled by God, and since you and I are only members of this universal or Catholic church by the will of God and not by our own will, then as we consider our involvement in the local church, shouldn't the will of God be our primary concern? Now, to be sure, we should think before we join a church, is this church faithful in preaching and teaching the Word of God? Do they have a biblical form of leadership? Do they rightly practice the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper? Do they practice church discipline? These are all important questions that we should consider. But the will of God is paramount. It may be, in fact, I would guarantee you that it is, that any church you might consider joining is less than it should be. There is no church under heaven which is perfect. They are all, as our confession says, subject to mixture and error. But it may be that God wants you to be part of that church anyway. Perhaps he's going to use you to help reform the church back to a biblical pattern. Perhaps he wants you to be part of that church for reasons that you may never know or may not realize until years later. But the will of God in the matter should be your primary concern. This means that joining a church is something that should be done after much prayer and consideration. How is the Holy Spirit leading you? Benjamin Keach, a particular Baptist pastor in London in the 1600s, wrote a short but wonderful little book on church discipline called The Glory of a True Church. He starts out by defining what a church is, and here's what he says. A church of Christ is a congregation of Christians who, as a stated assembly, being first baptized upon the profession of faith, do by mutual agreement and consent give themselves up to the Lord and to one another according to the will of God, and do ordinarily meet together in one place for the public service and worship of God, among whom the word of God and sacraments are duly administered according to Christ's institution. So you can see a number of those things that I mentioned. Are they preaching the word? Are they, are they gathered and organized properly? Are they observing the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper? But, and he's echoing, by the way, our confession, chapter 26, paragraph 6. It's not verbatim, but it's very close. But the key phrase in all of that is according to the will of God. Since the church is God's assembly and since it is God who gathers us into his church, our desire should be to join a local body under the leading of the Holy Spirit, to be where he wants us to be rather than pursuing our own will in the matter. So that's the second mark of distinction for the church. It is gathered by God rather than the will of man. The third mark of distinction is that the church is gathered to God. 
And again, look back at our text in Hebrews 12, in verse 23, it says that we have come to God, the judge of all. And in verse 24, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. We are not gathered by God, not only gathered by God, but we are gathered to God. Other groups may be gathered around a political candidate, around a celebrity, around a cause or a shared interest of some kind, but the church is gathered to Christ. We're not just simply gathered around Christ. We are gathered to Christ. We are united to him as our covenant head. He is the mediator of the new covenant. We are united to him by faith. He is the vine. We are the branches. Our very life depends on our connection to him. Apart from the vine, the branch withers and is cast into the fire. But in Christ, we have our life, our strength, our spiritual sustenance, our righteousness, and our hope of eternity. Apart from him, we have nothing. This means that no other group on the planet can match the church for the importance of their gathering. This isn't just a matter of life and death. This is a matter of eternal life and death. There are groups that gather around many, many different causes. They may gather around their shared grief or outrage about the loss of a loved one. And those are indeed tragedies. And so the group gathers to support each other, perhaps to attempt to affect some change in the culture, fighting against drunk driving or gun violence or whatever the case may be. But one thing those gatherings cannot do, they cannot give life to the dead. The church, however, is gathered to the Prince of Life. He gives life to all who trust in Him. And not just life here and now, but life beyond this life, life in the eternal kingdom, in the new heavens, in the new earth, everlasting life. And here's another distinct thing about the gathering of the church to Christ. Other groups are gathered around a common interest, a common goal, a common grief, but the church is full of people whose griefs are different, whose interests are different, whose sins are different. We don't gather in this church because all of us have the same exact grief, the same exact struggle with sin, or the same exact interest and hobbies. They're all different. And yet we gather as one because we are gathered to Christ. And in Him, all our griefs, whatever they may be, find comfort. In Him, all our sins, whatever they may be, are forgiven. In Him, all our deepest needs are met. We don't rally around a common grief or a common sin, but around the one true answer to them all. The church is gathered by God to God in Christ. And that's why the Scripture says things like this in Acts chapter 5. And believers were increasingly added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. Not added to the cause, not added to the movement, not added to the campaign, not even added to the church, added to the Lord, united to Him by a bond that cannot be broken. 
There is nothing, we are told, in heaven or on earth that can snatch us out of his hand. In Romans chapter 8, the apostle Paul writes and says, For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels nor principalities, nor power nor things present nor things to come, nor height nor depth nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's why Christians from different cultures, from different nations, from different backgrounds of all sorts can gather together and worship and fellowship and share the bonds of love because we have more in common than just a shared interest. We have Christ in common. The church is unlike any other organization on earth because it is gathered by God, to God, and for God. So the fourth mark of distinction is that the church is gathered for God. Every gathering has a purpose. Every group that you might join in the world has a goal of some sort. For political gatherings, it might be the election of a particular candidate, the passage of certain legislation, For other groups, the purpose or goal might be a cultural cause of some sort, mutual help of those who are gathered, the sharing of grief or the indulgence of a common interest, whether it's sports, music, model trains, books. I did a quick search online and I found groups near here that are gathered for all sorts of reasons. There is a Lapeer Meditation Meetup. Not sure exactly what they do, but I assume they sit around and meditate. There's a mid-Michigan single baby boomers group. Talk about specific. There's a Reiki and vibrational medicine group. A wine tasting and social meetup group. There's an entrepreneur and innovation group. A fun lovers of travel group. There's a writer's collective, a women's support group. This is my favorite one, a paranormal ghosts, UFOs, etc. group. All of these groups are gathered to cater to the interests of the people who gathered. They're gathered around a common shared interest. And their purpose is to serve the people who have gathered themselves together. But the church is gathered for God alone. The purpose of the existence of the church is to glorify God. Isaiah 60, speaking of the new heavens and the new earth, says this, Also your people shall all be righteous. They shall inherit the land forever, the branch of my planting, the work of my hand, that I may be glorified. That he may be glorified. That's the purpose of our redemption. The glory of God in Christ our Savior. Romans 11 kind of wraps up and concludes the the doctrinal portion of that letter, and it ends in this way, for of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be glory forever. Amen. All things are for his glory. How much more then the assembly of the redeemed? In 1 Corinthians, we are told to glorify God in our body and in our spirits. In chapter 6, verse 20, 
And in chapter 10, verse 31, we are told to glorify God whether we eat or drink or in everything that we do. And finally, in Revelation 4, the 24 elders in heaven worship God on His throne, saying, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for You created all things, and by Your will they exist and were created. How much more could this be said of the church, which is created and gathered by the will of God and exists for His good pleasure and for His glory? We're not gathered so that we can sing songs that we like. We're not gathered so that we can hear preaching that pleases us or makes us feel better about ourselves. We're not gathered so that we can lobby Congress to pass laws that we like or persuade our neighbors to vote for our particular preferred candidate. We're not gathered so that we can clean up a city park or plant trees beside the highway. We are gathered to worship the Creator, to make much of Christ, to praise the name of the Savior. We aren't gathered, I said, to sing songs that we like. That doesn't mean that we can't enjoy the songs that we sing together. It doesn't mean that we can't enjoy singing together. We should, but not because it's our favorite musical style or our favorite song. It might be, but that's not why we sing. We have to be careful that we keep our perspective correct. The music isn't about us. It's about God. It's for His worship. It's for His glory. He is our covenant Lord. We are His servants, slaves even, of Christ. The songs we sing should be pleasing to God, first and foremost. And if our hearts are correctly oriented, fixed on Christ, turn toward Him in loving service, then we will love songs that honor and please Him. Our souls will delight in praising Him together with the congregation of His saints. I said we're not gathered to hear preaching that pleases us. In fact, the Scriptures warn us about those who do so. Those who will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth. The preaching of the church should not be focused primarily on pleasing the congregation, but on pleasing God. The preaching should be focused on being faithful to the truth of God in the Scriptures, And as those who are gathered by God, to God, and for God, we will find delight in God's Word. We see this in Psalm 1, Psalm 19, Psalm 119, not to mention Christ's obvious love for the Scriptures during His incarnation. This is what it means to love God with all of our minds. And sometimes it requires a conscious choice to delight in the truth of God's Word. Because sometimes it will convict us of our sin. It will chastise us for our disobedience. It will call us to repentance and faith. That can be uncomfortable. So we have to choose to be delighted in the law of the Lord. Psalm 1 describes the individual 
who loves God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength. And I love the way that it's rendered in the Scottish Psalter of 1650. That man hath perfect blessedness, who walketh not astray, in counsel of ungodly men, nor stands in sinner's way, nor sitteth in the scorner's chair, but placeth his delight upon God's law and meditates on his law day and night. He places his delight upon God's law. It's a conscious decision to take delight in the truth because it is God's truth, even if it makes me uncomfortable. And this should be our desire collectively as a church to delight in God's word. But you can see my point, whether it's the music we sing, the preaching out of the scriptures, the activities that we engage in as a church, our griefs are comforted in the church. That's not why we gather, but we do find comfort as we worship the risen Christ, refresh our hope for eternity. Our deepest needs are met as we feed on the Word of God spiritually together, the fellowship with one another. But we are gathered for God. We are gathered for His glory. The Westminster Shorter Catechism begins with this question and answer. Question one, what is the chief end of man? Answer, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Those two things go together. When we pursue the glory of God, we will find our highest satisfaction and our deepest delight. He is the reason we are redeemed. He is the reason we have been saved. He is the reason we are gathered to Christ, gathered as a church. He is the focal point of our gathering. The church is not just another spoke in the wheel that revolves around the hub of me. Christ is at the center. Everything else in life are the spokes. He is the focal point. His glory is the purpose of our gathering as the church. Now, this is true not just of our gathering in this particular building on the first day of the week. Yes, we gather at this time and place so that we might glorify Him by worshiping Him. But this is also true of our having been gathered to Christ as His people. And that means that even when we leave this particular gathering, we're all still spiritually gathered to Christ, along with the angels and the saints who have gone before us. We are citizens of the heavenly kingdom, even as we go about the activities of our daily lives. We are, as the scripture says, a peculiar people. In 1 Peter 2, verses 9 and 10, he says, But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. We are peculiar in that we belong to Christ, and we are gathered to him as our covenant head. The Bible teaches that all of humanity was in Adam as our federal head and under the condemnation of the law in the covenant of works, which we broke in the garden. But believers 
have been transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of the beloved Son. Christ is now our new federal head. We are under him as the mediator of the new covenant. We are the redeemed of God by the will of God, not by our own will, for the glory of God, not for our own glory. The church is unlike any other organization in the world because it is gathered by God, it is gathered to God, and it is gathered for God. So let us learn to live as no other people on earth, glorifying and enjoying God. Because this is practice. This is preparation. Because that's what we will be doing for all of eternity. Let's pray.